Today, we are continuing on in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we paused for Pentecost and celebrated the Holy Spirit, and today we're back to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And today, we're launching into a new section of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, uh, one, of the, one of the bigger core sections in the middle. Um, remember, this is Jesus's great sermon where he paints for us what the kingdom of heaven looks like, and he invites us to live in this kingdom right now. So let's get our bearings briefly. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 5, 17 to 20, and that's where Jesus proclaims that he fulfills the law of God. Uh, Alistair preached on this, and he ended on this verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The point was this. Jesus came and fulfilled the law, not abolish, but fulfill it, so that we can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. I think Alistair said something catchy, like, Jesus came to fulfill so we can exceed, which is good. I still remember it, so it means it must have worked. Was that right? So the point is that the bar is, too high, is high, and it's too high. It's too high for us to do on our own. Living out God's law as perfectly, as perfectly as we can isn't going to cut it in God's eyes. It won't cut it because no matter how much effort we put forth, we can't achieve perfect holiness on our own. So we're in a predicament. But Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He's brought the law to completion in his life, his death, his resurrection, and he's established a new covenant between God and, and the people. And this is good news. This is what we celebrate in the New Testament. It's, uh, Jesus, he's fulfilled the promises of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, who said in, in Jeremiah 31, 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. So in other words, when God establishes this new covenant uh, with the people, which the book of Hebrews tells us happened in Jesus, um, and, and pours out his spirit on, on his people, which we celebrated last week at Pentecost, God will dwell always with us by his spirit. And as he dwells with us, he'll be writing his law on the tablets of our hearts, day after day, in our innermost being. That's the plan. And with the law in our hearts, we will begin to be transformed deeply. Our minds will be renewed, and we're enabled to live the kingdom life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's God's plan for how it's meant to work. Now, if all of this feels a little abstract to you, which it may, and that's okay, uh, let's give thanks that Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. So he doesn't leave all this in the clouds for his disciples. He wants his listeners, and he wants us to know what on earth he's talking about. So what will it look like when our righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, when the Spirit is working in us? What does it look like? What does this greater righteousness of the kingdom look like in our lives? That isn't about moralism, but about deep transformation, about altering our loves and desires into the desires of God. What does it look like? Well, Jesus, Jesus gives us some pictures. He gives us six pictures of what it will look like walking in step with the Spirit and living the kingdom way. Six pictures of righteousness that it see the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and this is what we're going to do in the next six weeks of this series, go through these six pictures. 
Now they're not meant to be exhaustive of kingdom living, and they're not meant to be they're not meant to be exact prescriptions. But instead, there are glimpses, they're glimpses into the heart of a person who has the Spirit of God living in them and is in the kingdom. And this is how Jesus does it. He uses this, this phrase over and over. He says, six times he will say, you have heard that it was said. And then he'll go on and cite a bit of the law from the Old Testament that the Israelites live by. You have heard that it was said. And then he'll bring them back. Then he'll clarify it. He'll dig deeper into it. As if to say, now I'm going to tell you what God was always on about with this law. And he introduces this part with, but I say to you, now, but I say to you. And he'll describe the righteousness required in his kingdom, related to the Old Testament law, but clarifying it, the righteousness that exceeds. Now, as a side note, this way of teaching that the Gospels tells us Jesus engaged in, um, everyone marvels and reels at it. They're shocked by it. Jesus' hearers are amazed because they know that no rabbi would dare do such a thing. No rabbi would dare to give this deeper, fuller interpretation of the Old Testament law. It would have been a dangerous thing to do. They knew only God could do that. And this was revolutionary. It was dangerous, and it's what, uh, what was part of the reason that got Jesus killed. So with this method, Jesus is doing two things. He's clarifying, and he's clarifying the law and fulfilling the teachings And he's revealing the inner heart of the person who's in the kingdom. He's saying, this is what it looks like on the inside. Now, as we go through these, I want to give you a heads up. These are radical teachings. They're really uncomfortable. Uh, They're really uncomfortable teachings of Jesus that we're going to cover in the next six weeks. And as we sit with Jesus and listen and pay attention, I encourage each of us to take stock of our own hearts in this journey. Whether you've heard this preached many times or whether this is the very first time, if we're honest with ourselves, no one is going to be patted on the back and get a simple thumbs up, you're good, nothing to worry about. If we're listening rightly to Jesus, we will all be called to our knees to pray that prayer we prayed last week at Pentecost, come Holy Spirit and fill me and overflow me with you because there's no way I'm doing this on my own. So here's the main idea we're going to look at today in this first, uh, this first of the six examples. In the kingdom, anger is dissolved by grace. In the kingdom, anger is dissolved by grace. We'll get, we're going to go carefully through this passage and, and do our best to hear what Jesus means. And we'll see that he's describing, again, what God's character looks like living out in the hearts of people. And he's invited us to be these people. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus goes to Exodus 20, verse 13, to number six of the Ten Commandments, right to the heart of the law. Every Jew would have known this part, for sure. You shall not murder. You shall not intentionally and unlawfully kill another human being. Now, I think... Jesus may have started here because when you or I, and I wager even Jesus' original first listeners, were to sit down and read through the Ten Commandments, I think this would be the one that we can take a deep breath after and say, okay, I'm okay. I haven't done this one, right? (laughs) To pat ourselves on the back and say, check, I got it. I haven't murdered anyone this week. 
or ever, so I'm good, right? I, I, I'm guessing most of you can agree with me in that. Um, but if we're, if we're reading it this way, uh, yeah, we can pat ourselves on the back, but Jesus doesn't let us do that, does he? This is the commandment. Yes, you shall not murder. But Jesus, but Jesus pushes it further. He asks why, he wants to ask, why would God command this? What does this commandment tell us about who God is and what his character looks like? And what does this commandment look like when it is inscribed in the tablets of human hearts? What is it really about? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, Jesus doesn't let us pat ourselves on the back anymore. Jesus, Jesus clarifies, no, there will not be murderers in the kingdom of God, but neither will there be anger and hate ruling in people's hearts. Let's take a closer look at this. What is anger? We all know anger. It's that feeling that arises when someone cuts you off for the last parking spot, when someone pushes your kid into the mud at the playground, when your roommate clogs the kitchen sink with soggy cereal. I hate that. It's terrible. It's what it feels like in the, next mo- in, in the moment, right? When you have that rage, you see it on my face right now. It's anger. Gosh, why do they do that? Well, the American Psychological Association defines anger this way. Anger is an emotion characterized by antagonism towards someone or something you feel has deliberately done you wrong. Anger is an emotion characterized by antagonism against someone or something that you feel has deliberately done you wrong, and you're mad about it. It's what effuses out of you. Or it's what leaks quietly out of you if you're prone to the passive type. Because inside, you have a deep feeling that you've been wronged. That someone or something has done you wrong. Now we need to make some clarifications about anger as I've described it and what I think Jesus is talking about in the passage. We have to deal with this because we all experience anger uh, for many different reasons. Some are valid, some aren't. But Jesus is saying some very serious things about anger here. Now, I do not think Jesus is pronouncing condemnation over everyone who experiences this emotion. Nor do I think he is rebuking us wholesale from experiencing anger as an emotional response. Why not? Well, Scripture tells us God is angry about things. This matters not because we are the exact same as God, but the Holy Spirit is forming us into the image of God, into Christ. And we believe we have this Holy Spirit of God living in us, Pentecost. So it's important to know the character of this God we are being united with and to see how anger fits into God's character. And I think this will help us as we can figure out how we can respond and deal with our own anger in right ways before God. Well, the story of Israel in the Old Testament over and over again gives us glimpses into God's anger. And what God is almost always angry about is when people reject him, when they break the covenant vows and and worship false gods and idols, when their relationship is broken. The Lord God is angry 
in Exodus when he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Commandments that are descriptions of living an abundant life, the guidelines for living as, as humans fully alive. Yet the people at this exact time have gone down and built a golden calf and begin to worship it instead. The exact time he's giving them these commandments of life. God is angry because they are rejecting the truth for a lie, and it's going to kill them. This is but one example of a recurring theme, not just for Israel, but for us today too, isn't it? God is angry when we misdirect our worship, because misdirected worship leads to death. Worshiping empty, blind idols makes us blind and empty too. Now, lest we conjure up all the images of God, the angry ruler or explosive father, sitting on a throne ready to smite us, we must hold this with the fullness of God's character and who we know him to be. Who do we know him to be? The good father, the loving father, who is angry when his children hurt themselves and others, but not only angry, but also grieved and moved to sorrow. We can describe God as experiencing anger when things have gone wrong and righteous laws of the kingdom have been rejected, just as we would hope he is. God experiences anger and sorrow because it is the only fitting response to evil and sin. Without this, he would not be a just God. So when we experience anger as an emotional response to the evil in our world, this is not what Jesus is talking about. This is anger that does, that does not fester in the heart and, and hurt us and others, but drives us to, to funnel our energy towards acts of mercy. This is good. But we need to return now and ask, well, okay, but what is Jesus warning us about in verse 22? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is concerned about the sort of anger that burns deep inside a person. The anger that leads to murder. Remember, he is expounding that commandment, you shall not murder. Jesus is making us ask the question, where does that drive to do harm to others start in the first place? Now, these three statements that he gives in this verse they're not meant to be differentiated. It's not as if there's three levels of anger here or types and each one has a corresponding consequence. That's not the point. Uh, what he's doing is saying that the place in your heart that leads you to insult a brother or sister, the space inside you from which comes hateful cutting remarks and words or maybe silent ones with your eyes, there is no place for that in the kingdom of God. When our lives are submitted to Christ, our hearts do not harbor this deep-seated anger that burns slowly away at us. We don't grip onto hatred towards another that spills out in how we treat people. We can't delight in the darkness of resentment that drives us to justify ourselves against others, to compare their faults against my virtues, to eager, eagerly await for a chance for revenge. And notice Jesus says being angry against a brother or sister. It's the ones who we live closest with who we can actually hate and be angry at the most. 
I'm talking again about the anger that you live in, that's on low burn in the background, that makes you clench your jaw at night, that you return to like a drug. The terms Jesus uses here as examples, they were common everyday insults. When he says insult or he says you fool, these were common insults. They weren't deeply offensive curse words. He didn't go to the Urban Dictionary and find the worst words he could. They were common. Uh, so the, and the consequences Jesus pairs with them, they would have sounded absurd to the listener. Being judged for anger or going to court for an insult, this, this didn't make any sense. And then Jesus takes it to the utmost extreme that he can, doesn't he? Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Really, Jesus? Really? This sounds crazy at first. Sure, we shouldn't insult people, but does it really deserve the hell of fire? Well, the term Jesus uses here, it's important to understand, is Gehenna in Greek, which references a valley outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. In Israel's story, this valley was known for horrific atrocities. The apostate king Manasseh in the book of 2 Kings, we learn, led the people in sacrificing their children in fire to the god Molech in this valley. So when you read the Old Testament about God being angry about false worship, this is what he's angry about. It's serious business. Israel's prophets then used this valley, this place, as emblematic for where God would judge the unrighteous. And by Jesus' time, it had fully taken on this meaning, a place of judgment for those who reject God. In the New Testament, only Jesus talks about hell to describe God's judgment, except for one instance in the book of James. Other than that, it's only Jesus. And when Jesus talks about hell, it is in contrast to the vision of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that he's continually casting. So he's casting this vision of the kingdom of God, and hell is like the flip side, the foil. It's the end result of rejecting God's kingdom, his way of life of opting out and living into the path of death. In this, in this teaching, Jesus shows us that, again, he's concerned about the inner person. And if you are mastered by anger and hate and, and, and resentment in a deep way, it doesn't matter whether that manifests in murder, murdering another person, or harboring deep-seated anger that continually burns in your heart. What he's saying is that both are evidence that one's heart is not submitted to God and moving not towards his kingdom, but instead towards hell. This sounds weighty because it is weighty. Jesus isn't teaching casual morality here. In fact, in this escalation, Jesus is actually rejecting moralism at every level. He's saying this isn't about the actions, actually. It's not about calling someone you fool. Jesus actually uses that term himself later in Matthew. <laughs> or about murdering. That's not the main thing. It's about whether our hearts are softened towards God and are moving on a path towards his kingdom. Are our hearts moving that way or away from it? That's what Jesus is deeply concerned about. And for all of us, it is about repentance. Because there are always areas of our heart that are not fully yielded to Jesus, aren't there? It's about allowing the Spirit, the Spirit of God, into that place, inviting the Holy Spirit into that hard place to convict the areas we'd prefer to ignore and forget about and asking God to soften us by His grace and dissolve that anger. 
Repentance is always a change of heart that coincides with a change in action, heart and action. But don't confuse this. I don't mean that there's always first an inward innate desire to repent and live differently. That may be the case sometimes, but very rarely. Normally, repentance begins with conviction of sin, which leads us to taking difficult steps, having challenging conversations, because it's the right thing to do, even if it's the last thing we want to do. And as we do this, the heart transformation happens too. The Spirit works. Our affections are moved and altered and changed into the heart of God. Jesus gives us an example. He actually gives us two examples of how to walk this out in repentance right afterwards in verses 23 to 26. They're both making a similar, generally the same point. We're going to look at the first one, verses 23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Have you ever had that experience? Not that exact experience, but where God shows you that you're harboring anger against someone, resentment, or as Jesus flips it, someone is actually harboring anger against you. And then the moment of conviction where you know that you have to go make it right, whether or not you were the one at fault or not, you have this deep conviction that i got to go talk to that person. And by the way, in Jesus' example, he intentionally places you and me not as the person at fault. He says, someone who has something against you. I think as, as, as if to say, don't go pointing a finger and wait for that person to come to you. The onus is on each of us, regardless of who was at fault. Either way, when conviction comes on me at least, when I need to go make it right with someone, in my experience, it is the last thing I want to do. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. It's not replay all the conversations you've had with this person over the last year and see if you're really the one at fault. It's not talk it through with your best friend even for a couple weeks to make sure you're thinking about it right. It's not even go home and pray about it until you feel ready. Leave your gift and go is what Jesus says. He knows that if we wait, if we are not attentive and act in the leading of the Spirit, when the Spirit comes upon us, we are actually really good at convincing ourselves <clears throat> otherwise that we never actually heard God speak, and it's really a bad idea. We shouldn't do it. In the context that Jesus invites us into, uh, a place of worship, leaving your gift at the altar before worshiping, that matters too. It matters because Jesus demands our whole undivided hearts in worship when we come to him. And he's acknowledging that anger and hate between sisters and brothers, maybe between people in this room, divides our hearts and keeps us in bondage. It limits us from freely being able to rest with God. So do you know where things may be amiss for you? Where you may have that anger on the low burn that's constantly pulling you to put walls up or to leak out aggression slowly. Now, for some of you, this is easy. You know right where it is. There's something massive that's happened in your life, and you live with that every day. 
Maybe you experience trauma through neglect or abuse, and it's manifested in your life in a constant battle with anger. To you first, healing is a long journey, and reconciling between two parties is only an option when both parties are safe and healthy and won't do harm to one another. Safe and healthy and won't do harm to one another. So if you're wrestling with something like this, just hear that, please, first. But it is a proclamation that freedom from this anger is possible. Jesus wants to offer you that. That's a gift of the kingdom. And if that's where you're at, please come talk to Alistair or myself or someone here, and we're, we're happy to walk that journey with you and explore that with you and wrestle through these tough questions of forgiveness and reconciliation and anger. It's, it's difficult. I get that. We'd love to help you walk through this if that's where you're at. But I want to pause from that area for a minute. Invite us all to shift our focus to maybe the less dramatic situations going on in your life. Is there anger that you've maybe been pretending not to know about for some time? That's quiet yet persistent. That keeps coming back when you lay in bed at night. Think about those closest to you especially. These are the people it's easiest to hate, to envy, to compare ourselves against, to tally with. Your roommate or spouse who you silently resent for not appreciating you. A best friend who you deeply envy because your life, their life, is everything you wished yours was. A child, even, who has way more needs than you can handle, and you're actually mad about it. And you're mad at God, too, for giving you this hand. These are real things. Is there anything there? Repentance is responding to the convicting work of the Spirit in action. And as, and as we do this, as we respond, it's praying too and asking God to direct our heart and to move our hearts into His, into reconciliation to shape us and, and change our desires. Admitting this type of anger and walking in repentance, that's what the righteousness looks like that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Admitting that anger and walking in repentance and opening it to Jesus and saying, I have this, I don't know what to do with it, I need help. Heal me. This is the righteousness, the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. And no, of course, you can't do it alone. It's impossible. But again, we celebrated Pentecost last week. And that's good, the good news that we don't have to. And we can't because the Spirit is with us. Because the Spirit of God does live with us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, by encountering His compassion and kindness, we run into something called grace. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable, when you think that anger is, is shameful and you don't want to tell anyone. Well, grace is what meets you and says, I love you even when you're unlovable. Those are the words of Jesus to you when you're the opposite of lovable. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. And guess what? The roots of anger cannot withstand it. In the kingdom of God, hatred Dissension, bitterness, resentment, envy, vanity, comparison, anger, they will all be dissolved by the power of grace.